Welcome to LifeSide Beat. I'm your host, Shubham Chatterjee. We're kicking things off in our second season with an exciting and insightful discussion I had with Kirsten Stead, managing partner at DCVC Bio. DCVC is a venture capital firm based in the West Coast that focuses on deep tech investing and has over $3 billion in assets under management. DCVC Bio is the bio-focused fund of DCVC, where Kirsten invests in life sciences companies that have a deep tech advantage, principally in therapeutics, agriculture, and synthetic biology. She's been closely involved with several leading biotechs, including Abcelera, Umoja, Crayon Bio, and Plexium. Previously, Kirsten was the investment director of Monsanto Growth Ventures and received her PhD and scientific training in the University of Alberta, which followed a bachelor's from the University of Calgary. We had a terrific conversation diving deep into tech bioinvesting, company formation, and so much more. So please join me and Kirsten on LifeSci Beat. But before we get started, let's talk tech bio really quickly. Now, if you're already familiar with the name and with that space, feel free to skip this to around three minutes in the podcast. But if you want to learn more, let's first talk drug development. Traditional biotech witnesses really long drug development timelines. New drugs are often serendipitously discovered by basically seeing if a bunch of compounds can stick to a target. Biology is then interrogated through what's called REC and check. You delete a gene, i.e. REC, and then see the effect of the cell, i.e. check. Now, these sorts of trial and error methods mean high failure rates and often a long time to find the optimized drug. So it can take billions of dollars to get a drug to market. Now, let's talk about tech buy. There's a lot of definitions that are out there for this, but the one I like is engineering-led biology. TechBio tries to disrupt drug development by using computation and often machine learning to then systematically identify new targets and to design new drugs, integrating computational biology right at the start of drug discovery. The hope is that this then lets you discover novel biology. It lets you improve the predictability and the reproducibility of your experiments, and most importantly, it helps you improve R&D productivity. So what does better, faster, and cheaper actually mean here? It means finding more optimized drugs that are intentionally designed. You find them faster with computational predictions instead of long and costly experiments. And then you do all of this cheaply by finding those failures faster and earlier in the process. There's a ton more information you can find online, which we'll link in our Medium article. But with this background, let's dive in. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's start this off with an icebreaker. It's a question we like to ask many of our guests just to begin the conversation. What did you want to be when you were growing up and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, if by growing up you mean high school, I was determined to become a fighter pilot. And then you you switched Um, to VC, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I did not have aspirations of getting into venture capital and I'm sure that I had no idea what that meant. I was living in Canada at the time, and I think I had to come to terms with the fact that Canada doesn't have a significant air force. So I think it was that realization and caused me to switch back to my love of science. And so I eventually pursued that in university, started starting off as a physics major, and then switching into genetics and molecular biology as my thoughts around what I wanted to do more full-time matured. 
I was an academic and did a PhD in genetics and molecular biology, but through that experience was involved in starting a company out of our lab, uh, which was a venture-backed company eventually acquired by a public agricultural company and had the experience of starting something from scratch, doing licensing, seeing all that happen. And as I went through my academic career, began to realize I wanted to do more of that applied type of research development. So more of the D part of the R&D and less of the R part. And so to that end, I went and got an MBA in finance through a variety of activities. So I was helping spin out companies from universities with professors and academic labs and ran into pretty well-known venture capitalists in Silicon Valley who recruited me to work BC. And my object there was always to become an entrepreneur and perhaps leave with a really interesting early stage startup the forcing function of having to know a huge variety of technologies and also understand the business side and opportunities and having a really broad lens was really attractive and just fit with my habits and aspirations of being able to look into the future and and shape the future to some extent. In terms of shaping the future, I know that there's certainly so many companies that certainly should be shaping that future, as you mentioned, particularly within the biotech space and this life sciences space. And I know that DCBC Bio focuses on what they call sort of deep tech investing in the life sciences. So could you help clarify for the audience what this looks like and maybe what's the difference between traditional biotech investing, which folks may be more familiar with, versus the types of companies that DCBC Bio tends to support? What we're talking about is from the life science side, we tend to focus on therapeutics, agriculture and industrial biotechnology, and usually at least two of those three buckets are involved. Now, what we look for when we talk about deep tech is sort of a swing for the fences approach. So either we're combining that life science product outcome, so we'll go into the market of one of those areas with either a swing for the fence approach in biology, like shaping the future, as you meant, like a company like Emoja that's doing in vivo CAR-T therapy for solid tumors. This means there'd be no substantial out-of-the-body manufacturing, so it would replace autologous and allogeneic treatments, which would completely change the cost structure and delivery mechanisms of getting these drugs to patients. And so that's something we're keenly focused on. But moreover, it means the combination of a native knowledge of physics, artificial intelligence, compute, robotics, and engineering that can help develop those products faster, better, cheaper, more predictably, and engage the technologies that have been developed in other areas outside of the life science and bring those forward into the life sciences. And what that means on a company build perspective is that our companies will have these skills natively. So this isn't a build a biotech company and then hire some IT professionals or computational biologists to make things more efficient. But what we look for are are teams that have a deep insight on a computational approach or an engineering or robotics approach that is fundamental to the modality in the life sciences that can help the company predict out toxicities or predict better binders or predict some feature of that drug development or life science development pathway that it adds considerable value to the output. I think what's interesting about the kinds of companies that DCVC Bio supports, as you mentioned, it has this native knowledge of ML and computational biology in its approach to actual drug discovery. And from the sorts of companies that I see in the portfolio of DCVC Bio, 
it seems like there's that balance, as you also mentioned, between going after maybe specific product pipelines, but having really novel biology versus investing in platforms that have more of deep tech bio focus, but still having a path to a product. So I'm curious, how do you sort of balance investing in both? And does that perspective shift at all in today's more biotech bear market? Yeah, that's an that's an interesting question in this market. I think the decision path that you're describing for us centers on people. At the end of the day, we are in the business of developing ideas with teams and people. And if we feel that that team has an insight that they have earned and they can execute on that insight, we are game to support them and help grow the company. You know, platforms do have to be fed and watered differently than more traditional type of biotech investing. And the risk profile is much more different. The capital structure levels are are different and financing points are different. On the other hand, those companies, platform companies have an opportunity to partner their platforms and bring in revenues in other kinds of ways. But I definitely think that we're experienced in trying to build them both types of ways. You just have to recognize that they do require different types of care. Gotcha. And it definitely sounds like the nuance and the difference in capital stacks, so to speak, of tech biofocused platform might look for versus a more traditional biotech and maybe slight differences in milestones as well in terms of what's expected mm-hmm. to be achieved at different points in time. Are there an example or two that you could provide that helps differentiate what that differences in capital stack and expectations for milestones might be? So when you're building a platform company, A, you need to pull on really diverse skill sets from the very beginning. So your hiring plan looks a little bit different. It tends to be more technical on the front end when you're building those companies. From a capital and time perspective, these companies often need to license in additional technologies, right, to build out that platform. And then, of course, they need to spend some time proving that platform works, building it out, benchmarking it, et cetera, before they select lead, lead programs. And so there's more time on the front end and more expertise and having to pull in uh, really highly qualified people. So there's more capital involved on the front end, for sure. Whereas if you're, say, licensing a small molecule protein kinase inhibitor out of a big pharma or an academic lab that has great promise, you know more definitively in which area you need to grow and scale and what you're going to need to do. So it's just to draw those two things. That's how platform companies really need to be funded differently. So there's definitely more money up front. And also we have to prevent the parasitization problem, which is often platform companies, they can become parasitized by their own programs. So if you don't feed them properly, if they start to develop lead programs, then some investors will want to put all of the capital into developing those lead programs and abandoning or shortchanging the continued platform development. And what we try and make sure is that that capital deployment is balanced between those types of activities. And that often costs more and takes longer. You just have to be a little prepared for that. You know, a really good example in our portfolio is a fantastic company called Crayon Bio. So Crayon is working in the space of generating OBMs or oligonucleotide-based medicines that are effective and non-toxic from the get-go. The goal of the company is to get their platform approved at FDA so that they can eventually treat ultra-rare diseases, even to the point of what we call N of 1 disease, which means that there could be patients who are the only patients in the world with their genetic disease. 
So the objective here would be to have their platform proven out so that if infants are born with genetic diseases, their diagnostic journey does not end following their sequencing. Their diagnostic journey transitions into a therapeutic journey where a genetic medicine is made for them in particular and can be administered right into the patient, therefore bypass some of the CNS and uh, neurological disorders that we see a lot in these patients in this patient population. And so when we first financed the company, we were aware that they were going to buckle down and generate this computational platform. So it's a purpose-built platform that allows the company to build OBM, so all oligonucleotide-based medicines, that are guaranteed to be non-toxic when they come out the other end. You know, ASOs and SRNAs have been around for, for some time, and there are commercial drugs on the market. But when those are being developed, you can design the biology to be effective, but often the backbones and the chemistry, the charge, the atomic or quantum electron cloud that's created on these molecules interacts with membranes or other parts of your tissues and creates toxicity profiles. And so those have to go through clinical trials to be eliminated. And right now we still exist in a sort of wreck and check kind of biology where we build them to address the biology and then have to make sure they're non-toxic. And so as a result, you have to test a huge number of compounds, which of course, developing drugs is hugely expensive and time-consuming. What they've done is they've been able to say, we can design non-toxic molecules from the get-go so we can focus on addressing appropriate biology. And they can test those in tissue samples with the hopes of being able to go directly into patients. That's incredible. It sounds like CryonBi is doing some really exciting work, and I'm sure I and all of our listeners are going to be continuing to track that company's success as they look to sort of transform patients' lives, especially for these ultra-rare diseases. It sounds like CryonBio is thinking about regulatory development and the regulatory process maybe slightly differently than other companies, getting FDA approvals not only for the products that they build for patients, the actual therapeutics, but also for their platform. Is, is that how they're thinking about it? That's correct. If you can prove, you know, there's easy, there's ways you can prove that the platform will generate non-toxic OBMs. They're quite able and capable of being able to discern that data, to look at that data. I would say the difference in Crayon and Crayon side is they're engaging with the FDA much earlier than, say, a traditional company. So a traditional company is going to get to a development candidate, then have an interact meeting and start interacting with the FDA along those lines. But Crayon is much more embedded into the rare disease community. And so they're engaged with the rare disease community and FDA early to make sure that everything they do will help FDA to make, make a good decision here and that they design the experiments in a way that the data coming out of those experiments will be valid for the FDA. That's super interesting in terms of that early FDA engagement. And I know that it's something that a lot of folks are trying to do in terms of aligning that evidence generation package early to make sure that they're sort of hitting on all the points you need for approval. But it's fascinating to hear that on a platform perspective. I think another interesting component that you bring up is the platform generating therapeutic candidates. And there have been some really early discussions in the space about what does inventorship mean if platform comes out and comes up with a new therapeutic candidate and there is some human involvement, but not as much. Is there any sort of implications on patents and ownership when all of these new therapeutic candidates come out of these AI or machine learning based platforms? Or 
is there a new sort of you know regulatory mindset that needs to happen with the rise of these new sorts of companies? So for our companies, because at the end of the day, they are delivering a drug, a chemistry for agriculture, for crop protection, a microbe, whatever it is that their article of commerce is, that is covered by patents. So that composition of matter patents is no different than any other type of company. And actually, when you think about this, it is no different than any other company. Because if you have some fantastic small molecule chemists, which what they know cannot be patented uh, either, but most of your protection at the end of the day will come from the composition of matter or process in the case of cell therapies. So it's a group of of things that we find in traditional biotech that will protect the product and make it worthwhile. And for those of your re- your listeners who are not in biotech, the reason this is really important in biotech is because it's an incredibly expensive endeavor to develop one of these products. There's different numbers out there, but it's somewhere between a couple of billion dollars to bring a new, say, drug to the market. And so there has to be a pot of gold at the other side to make it worthwhile. I think the friction at the moment, I think a lot of large biotech and pharmaceutical companies still cannot deconvolute software from computational biotechs. So they still think they can license the software, take that software that's developed, put it in their own hands and used it. Computational biotech companies, they are a fully systems approach all the way from in vivo studies through algorithms, through their way of cleaning their data through data handling, their own internal data handling systems, which is really important, through to all their people, et cetera, they can't be uncoupled from one another. And I think that is where the friction is, is people that think that the value here is, quote, software. And it is certainly not software. It is much bigger. It has much bigger scope than that. It's super interesting to think about how these new deep tech companies are different from maybe the original fabric of biotechs, but obviously share a lot of the same elements around improving the biology and thinking about drug development. I think one particular element that you brought up is the team aspect, particularly, Mm -hmm. I think, for early stage investing that DCVC Bio does, the actual biotechnology can be still fairly nascent and maybe a bit harder to evaluate. In terms of thinking about evaluating the team, which I know is a bit of the fuzziest aspect of diligence in any company, how do you go about examining whether the technology has the right team in place? What are the kinds of signals and types of disciplines that you look for? I think initially I look for a team that has all the pieces in place, right? So they don't come to us and say, I'm going to build an AI platform to discover X and I just need to hire a PhD in AI. So we want the mind share of the underpinnings of what the company will need to do to be present. You know, Crayon's a great example. In this case, they came like a full package deal. Both the founders, Swag and Chris Hart, one's a OBM specialist and the other is a computational physics quantum guy. And so they, they had both parts of the puzzle to start this thing. But I, you know, we look for on top of that, a team that has earned a particular insight So through, they've generally worked at a big pharma before or biotech, or it's not their first company. So they have something that they've earned that they know that they can do or have a proposal to do what they're going to do and that we believe they've earned that insight. It is much harder for, say, a fresh postdoc who has not had a job before, who's not actually commercialized a biotech product before 
to conceive of and manage a company that's going to do that. You just don't know what good looks like. It's really, really challenging. Now, not always do we see this. We see some really bright people that are coachable and bring a lot of, quote, you know, gray hair in around them to help them learn those things by proxy. But generally speaking, we're looking for these people that have earned their insight. And then the rest of it is uh, a bunch of really common sense things. Do we trust them? Are they open and honest and transparent? Um, Are they coachable? And are they honest? In our business, everything we do is really hard. We don't understand all the features of every piece of our metabolism, our genetics, our immune system. And so we're always going to run into pretty significant roadblocks along the line. And you've got to be surrounded by people that you trust, that are transparent and open. Those are the most important features that we look for. Definitely. And I really appreciate those candid perspectives there. As you mentioned, you know, transforming patient lives is worthwhile, but incredibly challenging to do. And so you want to make sure you have the right people in place. And often, as you mentioned, that means folks who've earned their insight from previous experience. I also know that particularly in these deep tech bio spaces, we see a bit more of founder-driven biotechs coming to the fore coming out of top academic labs and institutions, first-time founders. What are the kinds of challenges that you think are typically underappreciated as these sorts of folks try to spin out their ideas into companies? What are the difficult things about company formation that you may not fully realize until you've just done it yourself? There's two, two things that we see folks like that toil with the most. One is that generating a scientific outcome out of an academic lab is miles away from a commercial product. Putting your product into the field in the case of agriculture or broad scale manufacturing or into a human being with the appropriate manufacturing, the appropriate regulatory, the appropriate team, the appropriate you know, translational biology is just a very, very different process than generating a series of nature papers. And it's very difficult to translate across that. So we always advise academics and actually the more sophisticated academics know that they can't do this and we'll try and put, either we'll contact VCs, they'll contact us early on and get us to look at things while they're going through the patent process. So is this worth patenting? Can you take a look? And then ask for some collaborative putting together of the team that's actually built commercial products before. I think that's absolutely essential. Number one, And then the jumping off to the next point is around people. So, you know, a lot of universities, you can get people that hang out, you know, tech transfer offices or their consultants to help people start companies. But the absolute best thing you need to do right off the bat is to find people, a CEO, a leader that has been there, that has done it before and can take it out of the academic lab and vet it in their own hands. And very often that's done through venture capital connections like ourselves. It doesn't always have to be. It's usually easier that way. But some labs do have connections to entrepreneurs that have been there, done that. Their favorite VP at GSK or that might want to you know, start a company. In the case of our agricultural companies, Verdant Robotics and Sabanto Ag, these are two entrepreneurs that are repeat entrepreneurs. So they've both been at companies and have started companies in their past. And so understand what that road looks like. For research that's coming out of academic labs, I think the important thing is to to get it into professional managers' hands as fast as possible. 
you know, something that we always try and do is recapitulate the basic science once it's in outside of the lab to make sure that what's been published is reproducible and that we can build on that. And all of these things are extremely difficult to do, building teams, etc. If academics are trying to be academics, which is incredibly demanding, and also start a company, which is incredibly demanding. It's important for academics to realize the demands of that, of doing it correctly, versus in a lot of areas in the world where the more norm is to try and start things with one leg in the lab and one leg in the company. No, I think it's incredibly important to understand the value of these past experiences, as you mentioned, particularly because of how challenging biotech can be and the kinds of challenges that come with the company formation where that experience really matters. So I think Mm -hmm. we've thought about tech bio and company formation really thoughtfully, and, and I really appreciate your insights there, Kirsten. I'd love to take a step back for a moment just on the applications of deep tech bio and machine learning in drug discovery. I'm curious to get your perspective here, since you've seen so many companies trying to disrupt the drug discovery value chain. Maybe that's at the target identification level, folks trying to you know, use lots of different data to find targets. At the hit discovery stage, I know there are folks who are trying to design better binders, for example, using computation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see this at the hit to lead optimization <clears throat> stage preclinically, maybe even in clinical trials to help patient recruitment and precision medicine. And there are, of course, folks like Crayon Bio who are trying to think about novel biology completely differently using computation. So I'm curious when you think about the drug discovery process, what are pockets of innovation where you see machine learning really providing the most compelling value to you right now? One of the misunderstandings about the application of machine learning or AI to drug discovery is this concept that it's somehow a panacea to solve every step of drug discovery, which it is not. You know, we joke inside our office a little bit that AI is superhuman, but it's also incredibly narrow and it has to be purpose-built for the task at hand. And so, you know, a lot of our companies, if they're solving various tasks, have various AIs and processes and data handling in order to accomplish what they want to accomplish. So it is, I'm going to, you know, make the facetious statement that it is not building a biotech company and sprinkling some algorithms over it and hoping that you're going to make drug discovery better. This is not how we see it. Where we do see great success in companies like Crayon and others who take a concept, understand the data they need to generate, generate that data internally through painstaking in vivo and in vitro studies, piling that data back into algorithms to be able to make them more and more predictive And so that what you're essentially doing is driving the cost of something in the discovery process to zero. And that's generally how AI should be viewed. You know, back in the day, Google couldn't exist, Google search, because search was too expensive. And what you're doing is you're driving the cost of that to approaching zero. I mean, that in sort of physics sense, where what would you do if you could drive a cost of something to zero? And that is what Crayon's doing. They're driving the cost of predicting toxicities in oligonucleotide-based medicines approximating to zero. Therefore, what would you do with drug discovery when you've done that? You know, what is Abcellera doing? They're driving the cost of antibody search to close to zero. And so they're able to run, you know, 160 plus programs, I think they have now. But in order to do that, you have to be incredibly focused on the task at hand and everything you build is going to be prescriptive to that problem. And of course, come inherent to that is that everything's internal. 
you know, the, you're not finding public data to generate your algorithms or to generate your findings. These are all very purpose built. And key to that is the data handling, is how they're handling the entire infrastructure of the company. And I think this concept is challenging for some to, to sort of get their hands on. It is not AI, you know, algorithms sprinkled on top of traditional processes. B, you know, it is not software that can be licensed, bought, sold, or used by others because it's, it isn't software. And C, it is almost impossible for, for large companies to institute this kind of bottom-up approach to solving a particular problem. It's just too weighty for them to have to be able to rebuild their internal data handling processes to build something like this. And that's where I see the three sort of most common misconceptions about what it means to be a truly a computational drug discovery company. Yeah, I love that answer because it provides much more insight and nuance than just saying, yes, I think this pocket makes the most sense, right? Each biotech probably comes in with its own value proposition. And as you mentioned, as long as the machine learning is thoughtfully and purposefully built for that specific use case and having it integrated from the get-go, I'm sure that's much more compelling than just, as you mentioned, you know, sprinkling it on the top. I think these are you know, incredibly insightful perspectives. Before we sign off, though, it would be remiss if I didn't ask a bit of career advice from someone in your position <laughs> for our listeners. So to that end, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who might be looking to start their own biotechs? Well, I'm a big proponent of the, um, I'm going to butcher the quote, which is something like opportunity favors the prepared mind. I think that we live in a world where we can be driven by our curiosity and be prepared so that when the right opportunity comes along, you're in a good place to take it. And then, you know, certainly when you're in the early parts of your career, say yes to every opportunity you can take because you can always say no later, but you can't say no and generally take it back later. So those two things are sort of the best piece of advice I can give folks starting out, certainly a technical career. I love that. Well, I'm sure those are words that we'll try to take to heart. And otherwise, thank you so much for your time, Kirsten. This was an incredible conversation. No, it's great chatting with you again. Thanks for having me.